Kura, this program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Wellington Access Radio, make your voice heard. Kia ora everyone, welcome to B-Side Stories. You're listening to Wellington Access Radio. We're on 106.1 FM. In case you have any complaints you need to make, that is the code. My name is Sapir. I'm Perrine. And um, and we're here on another Tuesday at 5, taking you home. <laughs> or keeping you at home, or... Whatever you're up to. Yeah, hopefully not still at work. How are you, Perrine? What's new? Uh, I'm pretty good. Um, <clears throat> I just saying I need to catch up on your jazz festival show last week. I went to one show in the festival, the Dueling Pianos at Caroline. It was wicked. Oh, my God, fun. Did they really, was it like a proper battle of the pianos? <laughs> How did it look? I must say I felt a little bit deceived by the duelling thing because it all seemed very friendly and collaborative to me. Maybe there were some nasty things behind the scenes, but hmm. anyway, it was good fun. That's so good. That's su- that's such a a music thing that they like pretend that they're fighting. It's like the like a dance-off or an yeah. improv-off, but really it's just fun and they love it and they're having a good time. <laughs> yeah, the festival was incredible. I think it might have been one of my favourite jazz festivals of all time, maybe. So you made it to a few? I made it to a few. I had my, my classic jazz festival bender where I make it to like two shows every night. <laughs> chase the jazz all the way home. <laughs> all the way home. Yeah, it was beautiful. And um, I got to see uh, Roger Fox's big band, play at the Opera House, which was pretty spectacular with some international guests and yeah. Um, but one great takeaway from the show, from the festival was all the musicians reminding the audience that actually jazz happens year round and don't forget about them. And uh, if you're listening yes. out there and you missed out on the jazz festival, you haven't missed out on jazz in Wellington because it's happening every week. <laughs> um Preen, who are you bringing on B-Side Stories this evening? So in the second half of the show, Susanna Aiken from Zero Invasive Predators is coming to talk to us about their work in Wellington and around the country. And um, that's... So we'll be hearing a bit about um, the work on our three big predators. What are those? Well, possums... Stoats and rats. I think rats is the last one. Yuck. I'll be sad if I got that wrong. Me too. <laughs> um, they sound gross. I'm excited to learn about what we're doing about them with Susanna later on in the show. Yes, and in the first half. In the first half of the show, we'll be speaking to, well, we've already spoken to, you'll be listening to Charles Royal, who is uh, of the Matariki uh, behind all of the Matariki activities that happen over at Te Papa. Because for those who don't know, tomorrow is the first day of Matariki when the Seven Sisters or the Pleiades constellation appear in the sky for the first time, heralding the Māori New Year. So without further ado, we'll kick that off for you. I'm excited for you to learn all about the beautiful work going on to bring uh, a Māori festival into our contemporary lives. Mm. Okay, enjoy. Kia ora. Um, welcome to B-Side Stories, Charles. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, do you want to tell us, first of all, who are you and what do you do at Te Papa? Sure. Uh, my name's Charles Royal and I'm on the executive leadership team here at Te Papa and a director. And uh, I look after a directorate inside Te Papa that's to do with communities and repatriation, and which is the repatriation of Māori and Wuriori human remains from overseas and sector development that's assisting museums and art galleries and iwi around the country in the care of their taonga 
Um, but also look after things like the, the Morai and uh, Treaty of Waitangi Settlements and some of the bicultural dimensions of Te Papa. Yeah. When did you start in this role? February 2016. Oh, so it's, you know, still relatively new. Yeah, it is. Great. Do you feel like there's lots of scope to do the things that you're really passionate about? Yes, yes. There's, um, you know, uh, Te Papa is a great big huge humongous <laughs> organization that does all sorts of crazy things and great things um, and uh, I myself I'm interested in arts and culture I'm a musician composer and writer and uh, and Te Papa gives me scope to utilize some of that now and then. So we're talking this week about Matariki mm. the um the time of the year where the, the rising constellation of the Seven Sisters appears in the sky and it's like this huge opening and a renewal for, for all of us. Um, where does that fit into your passions, I guess? Right. <laughs> well, um, um, my research interest is traditional Māori knowledge, what we call Mātauranga Māori, and more broadly Indigenous knowledge. And I've been a researcher and a writer on Mātauranga Māori for a long, long time now. And when I arrived and Mātauranga became one of my responsibilities, it was natural for me to make use of my own knowledge and experience in this area to, uh, you know, to apply that knowledge to the ongoing evolution of the Mātauranga celebrations here at the Papa. Um, secondly, it is, Matariki itself is also an opportunity for me to make use of my own experiences in the arts as well, um, because the Matariki celebrations often involve music and storytelling and entertainments and so on, so it provides me an opportunity to do that as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that Matariki has been an interesting outlet for me personally, but also it's a, it's a great project for Te Papa and for Te Papa to be actively, actively involved in the evolution of bicultural national culture. Mm. Do you think that national culture is the responsibility of a museum? Yes, well definitely this museum. Mm. Uh, not all museums, but definitely this museum. This is, the, this is the National Museum and we have a role to play in being a forum for the nation. Uh, we use the expression safe place for challenging conversations, uh, a place where New Zealand and New Zealanders can come together and wrestle with questions of great importance and uh, be something of a vehicle for fashioning national culture. Yeah. So can you talk to me about the place of Matariki in society? What's the, what's the like, ideal? How could Matariki be for New Zealanders? Well, perhaps I can start first with what it was historically. Um, uh, so historically... Uh, iwi communities, tribal communities throughout New Zealand would celebrate and mark the arrival of Matariki or the Seven Sisters, now known as Nine Sisters actually, the two further stars have been added to it, but the arrival of Matariki in the midwinter time came at the end of the lunar calendar year and the new moon after the arrival of Matariki marked the beginning of the new calendar, lunar calendar year. So that's why Matariki, the appearance of Matariki, is, is, is a New Year celebration. Um, and so historically, um, the elders of communities would stay up late, um, waiting for Matariki to be seen in the sky. And when they see Matariki in the sky, they would light these ritual fires and, and cook food on these fires. 
And it is said that the food, uh, the aroma of the food, would uh, be a, a conduit or a vehicle for releasing the spirits of loved ones who have passed away in the year just gone. And it was also it was said that Matariki itself would descend to earth and, and partake of the food and be nourished by the food. And it captures this, this, um, this idea, this wisdom that's inside indigenous cultures of this kind of reciprocal relationship between humankind and the universe. We're not here merely to exploit the universe, but just as we partake of the fruits of the universe, we have to give back as well. And it's a, it's a critical principle of indigenous cultures all over the world. And it's expressed again in this, uh, in this traditional ritual of what's said to be feeding the stars or feeding Matariki, nourishing the universe. Um, and then following that kind of the more formal rituals, farewelling of loved ones and uh, offering prayers and things like that, then the families would gather um, for festivities, to eat together, to tell stories, to entertain one another. And that, in a nutshell, that was how the so-called Māori, traditional Māori New Year celebrations took place. Now these things were practiced in in iwi communities till around about the 1930s and 1940s, and they fell out of disuse and they were stopped. Um, basically, they they um, they were somewhat abandoned and they weren't continued after about the 1930s and 1940s. So you had a gap of about 50 years when these kind when Matariki wasn't celebrated at all, just long enough for a, a new generation of New Zealanders to know nothing about Matariki at all. And it's not till you get to uh, approximately the year 2000, 2001, when you see the beginnings of the new Matariki celebrations in New Zealand, here at Te Papa, but not only at Te Papa. Te Papa has had an important role to play in the leadership of the modern Matariki celebrations, but it's not the only party responsible for the growth of Matariki in the last 17, 18 years. Yeah, so that's... And so since 2001, we've pretty much marked Matariki or celebrated Matariki each year in the midwinter time, around this time of the year, June, July, May, June, July, around that time of the year. But in the last kind of 10, 15 years, it's really been a general celebration of Māori culture. It's been a, a place in which diverse New Zealanders can come and learn something about Māori culture. They can eat some Māori food or see some music or you know, stories or something like that. It's been a general kind of celebration of Māori culture with a little bit of matariki in between, you know, people getting up early in the morning, trying to see the stars, or uh, doing various uh, rituals and so on to mark matariki. Today, what we're doing at the Papa is trying to um, uh, move from that general celebration of Māori culture to a more curated and focused series of formal and informal events that are particularly about Matariki itself and to restate Matariki as a its primary kaupapa or its primary purpose is renewal. Because it's a New Year's celebration that's the primary theme of Matariki is renewal. The end of one lunar calendar year, the beginning of the new. So that's a rough kind of overview of where we've been historically and where we are today. Where we'd like to go is that it has achieved the status of an indigenous event of national identity. That it is something embraced all over New Zealand. It is a place where um, you know people do connect with the natural world, which is what indigeneity is all about. 
Um, and by connecting with Matariki and connecting with the lunar calendar, which goes through the entire year, and by connecting too with what with the natural cycles of the universe and the natural rhythms of the universe. This is again another wonderful thing about Matariki is that it reminds us that there are natural ways of marking time. Where all of us are dominated by the watch and the iPhone and the you know the artificial time. But Matariki reminds us that there are actually all these natural cycles and natural ways in which time is marked. And uh, so it offers an opportunity to reflect upon that. Uh, it naturally leads off into the phases of the moon, which is the lunar calendar, and also the appearances of uh, the appearance of other stars in the entire cosmos through the through the uh, um, you know through the lunar calendar year. So we definitely like to see it as this indigenous of international identity. We great to have a national holiday because I think everyone would like an extra day off work in midwinter time. But that's not really the reason to do it. It's more to do with the, the seriousness and the commitment of the nation to the fundamental ideas of Matariki, about connection to earth, sea and sky, about um, connecting to the natural aspects of life, you know, that people do die and their lives need to be celebrated and they need to be uh, honoured and people also need opportunities to come together as communities, as families, as neighbourhoods and celebrate one another outside all of the usual you know, rush of responsibilities that we all engage with. We also need opportunities to express hopes and aspirations into the future. One final thing is New Zealand lacks these kinds of events. We don't have many events of national identity. We have Waitangi Day, we have Anzac Day, that's probably the only two really formal, continuously, uh, continuous uh, events of national identity. They're the only two. Other than that, we have rugby games and the odd thing that happens here and there. Um, so we think there's real scope for another um, celebration, another event on the national calendar, annual calendar, uh, to be celebrated and committed to annually. We think Matariki could be it. Do you think New Zealanders are are craving national identity and, and ways to celebrate or learn a national identity? Is that, is that missing? I think so. I think so. I, our mayor here, here in Wellington, when I had a, a conversation with him, he was speaking about, he told me about his experience of going to Europe and, and uh, experienced the incredible cultures of Europe and the wonderful things of Spain and Italy and so on. And he was reflecting on, you know, what, what's our cultural toolkit? Here in New Zealand, what you know particular expressions do we have as a nation? And he he said that he was a bit concerned that we didn't really have much, uh, and it was a bit concerned that we really didn't have much when in fact we could actually have a lot if we just spent a bit of time investigating things like Matariki, for example. And so he's he's become very very keen and very very supportive of Matariki here in Wellington City. Um, yes, so, uh, yes, I do think I do think New Zealanders generally are looking for a, um, a national culture, expressions of national culture that we can all share in and be proud of. Yeah. And so then, for those in New Zealand for whom Matariki and um, and Maori identity is very central, um, do you think that they are are willing to be leaders in this? That the Maori population of New Zealand could stand up and, and bring people on this journey of something that they're familiar with already and 
Maybe, maybe Pakeha not so much? Yeah, I, th- I think the short answer is yes, the short answer is, but there are some complications. Mm. You know, Māori people have over a long period of time suffered a lot of cultural loss, a lot of language loss, and, and it manifests itself in a lot of disarray that you see in Māori communities and so on. So naturally some Māori are going to feel a bit aggrieved if other people rush off and they can speak te reo Māori and they get into Matariki, but I don't even though I'm a Māori person. So I think, yes indeed, I think Māori do want to share culture and be participant in creating a new national culture which is influenced by Māori culture. But there are some complications along the line, along the way, that you've got to be mindful of and think about, yeah. How do you empower people in that minefield? How, how, have you, are there strategies for making sure that that aggrieved, um, completely justified um, by the way, aggrievedness yeah. is like handled with care and, and enabled. Do you know what I mean? The short answer is come along to our Matariki community ritual at the end <laughs> of next week on the 15th of June because you'll see that is precisely what I do in my work is I help Māori move from a position of grievance to a much deeper sense of identity and give them some tools about how to articulate their identity. And that leads them also to... Um, be more open to others. This is why, so I'm getting a bit on a political bandwagon here, but this is why it's absolutely fundamentally important that New Zealand continues its investment in the revitalisation of Māori language and culture. Because as Māori feel, like any culture, any community, if we feel under threat, you're less likely to open up to others. It's a universal human principle everywhere. That but as Māori learn more about our own identity, our own culture, we come to reach a sense of peace about our experiences, about our history, about who we are and so on. We're more likely then to share and open with others. So that's, and I've seen it, it's been my own personal experience as a Māori person, and I see it time and time again all over, everywhere. I see that the importance of when you re- return the language to people and their sense of history and identity and who they are, they are much more likely to, to be accepting of criticism, for example, and to share with others going forward. So a lot, so much of what I do is about exactly that. Are there many people like you doing this kind of work? It seems like yeah. a very important area. Yeah, there's some. There's some. There's not a lot. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot, but there there are some. There are um, most. I shouldn't say most. That's not quite right. Naturally, much of Māori leadership has been focused upon mitigating the effects of colonisation. So hence that's why so much Māori intellectual energy is inside the settlement of treaty claims, uh, inside the, you know, the reconstruction of tribal estates, the reorganisation of tribal structures and things like that, the creation of new enterprises. That's very much kind of an internal churning of the stuff going on um, and it's absolutely understandable and absolutely valid. It's incredibly unfair that critics of treaty settlements then turn to Iwi and say, how come you haven't solved the P problem? How come, you know, uh, there's so many Māori in prisons and things like that? And they believe that because you've got a treaty settlement because of historical wrongdoing of the Crown, it's now the responsibility of the Iwi to also now fix up high imprisonment rates of Māori. It's incredibly unfair. Um, but that kind of criticism keep, keeps coming along, keeps moving along, and you keep hearing it. The key thing is, the key thing is to continue that, that 
that investment and that reorganisation and increasing a sense of confidence in, within those communities by which they begin to open more. Now there are plenty of people actually who are doing that, individuals who are doing that. There maybe not so many like me involved in active national cultural questions. Um, I don't know, to tell you the truth, I haven't counted <laughs> the numbers of people doing that, but anyway. anyway. What would you say to somebody who has maybe thought about coming along to Matariki rituals and um, has dabbled, maybe Googled, um, you know, had a look at what it's all about, but is maybe a little shy and thinks, actually, this isn't mine. Um, I might be from maybe a recent immigrant to New Zealand <coughs> or, um, or don't know much about um, te kanga Māori. What would you say to someone like that? What I find is the resistance is amongst Pākehā New Zealanders. Mm. It's not amongst immigrants. It's not amongst recently arrived people. I find that they are much more open. Mm. It's terrible to generalise. I shouldn't generalise, you know. <laughs> but the Mātariki ritual we had last year, there were, of course, there were plenty of Pākehā people there too. But there were also, it was really wonderful to see um, immigrants, newly arrived people, over a few, just for a few years, from all over the planet, we're at the we're at the ritual last year, and um, but really the answer to the question is the evolution of Matariki as we are advancing it at this time is that it's not a by Maori for Maori activity, right? but rather it's inspired by Maori, but it's by all for all. It's an event of national identity. It's an event of unity of national unity across the diversity of the country. But its elements are inspired by Māori culture, but its purpose is to unify, bring together. That sounds really exciting. Yeah. What part are you most looking forward to? <laughs> oh, um, what do I enjoy the most? It's great when heaps of people come. <laughs> you know, when you put on something, a lot of people came. You know, last year was 538 people came and without any marketing or anything at all. Interesting to see whether it's the same. It is midwinter time. It's very cold at the moment, um, but it is marvelous when a lot of people come. And secondly, the really great thing I saw last year was that people really wanted to share. Mm-hmm. You give people opportunity to share, they will take it. I was a bit concerned that if if you know, open it up, that you know, send a microphone around and say, you know, please share, tell us about who you are and all that kind of thing. I was a bit worried that no one was going to respond. No concerns at all. Just immediately people were saying, well, I'm Mary from Palms of the North and I'm here because of this and so on, you know. Mm. That's so cool. Mm. And what about you in your own life? How does Matariki fit into your calendar? Is it something that you and your family do in a particular way? (laughs) No, it's because I do it at work. (laughs) No, no, no. I have to say I don't do much at all about Matariki in my own, amongst my own whanau. No, no, I don't. But but I'm pretty washed out with Matariki through all the stuff that I do. I, mm. I'm uh, This year I'm speaking in Taumarinui at a Matariki event there, more so in Kapiti Coast as well, and also uh, in Rotorua. So I get asked to speak and go and do things all over the country as well. Great. Mm. Uh, one of the things that you, um, that you say that you do on your site uh, is focusing on development of new tangata whenua. Did mm. I summarise mm. that correctly? What, what does that actually mean and how does it fit into what you're doing here? Mm. It seemed related to me. It is definitely related. So, tangata whenua tanga or indigeneity, that's the English word indigeneity, or indigenous worldviews, 
is about it's it's a, a worldview which sees humankind defined through relationship with natural world environments. And it's the core principle of indigenous cultures all over the world, and there are elements of this idea you find in most cultures anyway. But formal indigenous cultures place a real emphasis upon the relationship between the humans, human people, individuals and collectives, with the natural world environments. And almost everything about the culture is trying to foster this relationship with the natural world. So in Māori culture, if, if someone was to ask you who you are, you never answer with your name. It's poor etiquette to answer with your name. The way you identify yourself is by reference to a mountain, reference to a river, and reference to an ancestor or, um, or a particular place. So your, your very identity is experienced and revealed through relationship with natural world environments. And that's what indigeneity is. And there's all of these customs in the culture which is about relationship to place, the burying of the placenta of newborn children, the burying of the dead in particular places, you didn't just bury your dead anywhere, uh, partaking of the fruits of the land, uh, donning clothes that transform you into birds and animals and things like that. These are all typical indigenous things to do. And that, uh, my argument is that particular way of thinking about life is sorely needed today because we are thoroughly urbanised and we're increasingly urbanised and we're increasing the gap or the distance between human experience and consciousness and the natural world is increasing, increasing, increasing. So much so that we have a thing, you know, we, we have iPhones and we spend our lives inside virtual um, worlds now and we walk through life kind of blind to the natural world. Whereas the indigenous uh, um, worldview says that we, you know, that life is to be experienced and understood through relationships to the natural world. Now that idea, or that way of thinking about life, is as challenging to so-called indigenous peoples as to anybody else. Because we're all living urbanised lifestyles. We're all living in this kind of neoliberal, you know, 21st century life. We're all challenged by this. We're all living in an exploitative uh, relationship to the world. And um, yeah, so that's so Matariki, that's what's meant by an indigenous indigenous event of national identity. So that's trying to reconnect with the natural world and trying to foster a sense of identity in ourselves through relationship with the natural world. Mm. So nice. I mm. hope it works. <laughs> yeah, me too. So we'll see. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do any sort of. Um where can people find information about Matariki and Te Papa if they wanted to learn more before they show up? Sure. Well, there's lots of information about te, about Matariki on the Te Papa website, which is te papa, T-E-P-A-P-A dot G-O-V-T dot N-Z. Uh, there's lots of information there. Things can be downloaded. There's videos. And you also there's information also about uh, the celebrations of Matariki here at Te Papa this year. Perfect. Charles, thank you so much for taking the time and for joining us on the show. Sure. And Thanks very much. No worries. <laughs>